Welcome to Elevating Brick and Mortar, a podcast about how operations and facilities drive brand performance. This episode features an interview with Garrick Brown, Director of Advisory Services and Business Development at Lockhouse Retail Group. Garrick is one of the United States' leading retail real estate analysts. On this episode, Garrick discusses why he thinks the retail apocalypse is over, how retail has grown into a hospitality business, and why consumer expectations are higher than ever. But first, a word from our sponsor. Wouldn't you like to rest easy knowing that your brick and mortar locations are offering the best possible guest experience? It's time to partner with Service Channel for peak facilities performance. Check out servicechannel.com to learn more. And here's your host, industry and FM technology thought leader and chief business development officer at Service Channel, Sid Shetty. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Today, we have with us Garrick Brown. Garrick, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So let's get started. Let's set the stage for our listeners and get them a little background on you and your organization. What is your role, Garrick, and what are you responsible for? So I am the COO and Director of Business Development for Lockhouse Retail Group. We're a a full-service commercial real estate firm that focuses solely on retail, retail space. So whether it's leasing, sales, property management, and so forth. And, you know, basically as, you know, I run the operations, but I also work directly with our clients advising them. My background is as a real estate economist. You know, I kind of fell into the industry about 25 years ago, but basically my background was analytical and economics and just applying those to different retailers or landlords strategies for their space. And so that's, that's the gist of what I do. Tell us a little bit more about that journey, right? How did you end up in the space and industry? Well, that's a funny one because nobody really grows up saying, I'm going to become a commercial real estate analyst. (laughs) 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 Nobody in the space is there because it was was a thought-out plan. It's just luckily, uh, in my case, it was fortunate accidents. Uh, You know, I went to school and, and pursued two things, creative writing, and economics. And um, the ironic thing was, is that I was working as a freelance writer in Kansas City in the mid 90s, when one of my clients that I did technical work for asked me if I knew anything about commercial real estate, could I help her husband who was a broker, uh, you know, that they were doing an analytical report on the market. And I was, no, I have no clue, but I can do it. I'll just approach it like a journalist. Weirdly enough, so I I had a little side gig there, and three months later, I've got a toothache, and the phone rings, and it was the folks at Grub and Alice, and uh, they're they're like, hey, would you like to work for us full time? And my my big question was, do you have a dental plan? So... (laughs) (laughs) The right way to make a, a career choice. Yeah, next thing I know, it really, well, I get to think for a living, which is awesome. Uh, I get to write extensively. I get to speak extensively. I would have had no clue in school that this even existed, but uh, it turned out to be the uh, the best stroke of luck that I've had in my career uh, ever. Love it. That's great. And you and I have had some interesting discussions about the state of the industry and the economy, right? It's been a whirlwind couple of years. 
Can you share some um, interesting or surprising stat about where we are today? Well, the turnaround for retail has been mind-blowing. Look, for anybody who was on the real estate side of the business in 2020, especially the first six months, you basically became a grief counselor. Whether you were talking to tenants that were clients or landlords, you know, after years of that retail apocalypse storyline, which don't get me wrong, we, we've had all sorts of disruption from e-commerce the last 15 years. It's just made it a really challenging marketplace for certain categories of retail and certainly key retailers. But we hit 2020 and it felt like there was a real apocalypse happening. You know, we set records for store closures. We set records for chain bankruptcies. We had months on end where nobody was paying rent or some cases were were able to pay rent. It, it was quite bleak. Now, coming out of that, we thought, or at least, you know, I thought as, as an economist that, you know, we'll probably see some of the chains that did well during the pandemic ramping up their growth simply because so much of the carnage was small businesses, but, you know, you could seize market share in that environment. And so if you were, you know, fast food, for example, which of all the restaurant types, you know, the, the damage for restaurants literally depended on where you sat, right? If you were a sit-down model versus a drive-through takeout model, it was two different stories. Well, we figured the fast food guys would be in strong growth mode. And of course, dollar stores have been in aggressive growth mode for 15 years. But what's surprising is, is that it's kind of across the board. I mean, we've got apparel players that are in aggressive growth mode and just tracking the numbers, you know, going into this year with all of the updates, because a lot more players have upped their growth plans just in the last few months since the year began. You know, right now I'm tracking about 11,000 planned openings across every retail space using sector from restaurants to discounters to apparel to you know health clubs and gyms you know some of the categories that were hurt the most by the pandemic it is overwhelmingly the big chains you know the, the big multi-site operators although we're even on the restaurant front we're seeing record levels business formation a lot of its businesses that went under during the pandemic that are rebooting but it's really mind-blowing. I haven't tracked this much growth in the market for almost 10 years. Yet really, it's 2013 was the last time I saw an equal amount of growth. The difference this time, though, is that even then, we had chains that you knew were going to be right-sizing and downsizing because of the impacts of e-commerce, their debt levels, etc. Planned closures that I'm tracking now and there's still some you know chains that are in consolidation mode but they're at their lowest level that i've tracked in almost 15 years it really well i think it speaks to a couple of things one is that covid really really ripped retail's ugly bandage off all at once players that were on the edge many of them went over the edge you know, a lot of players that were going to slowly right size and maybe they were going to close 20 stores a year for three or four years. Suddenly they just said, all right, we're close to 100. 
we're going to get it over with. You know, and obviously e-commerce had this monstrous growth spurt that's coming back to earth right now. But what I think has happened is I think that the age of the retail apocalypse is over. And what I mean by that is if you look at, say, apparel, 10 years ago, 2% of apparel in the United States was sold online. It was about one third in 2019, right before the pandemic. Now it's about 45%. And the question you have to ask yourself is, do you believe that we're going to live in a world where 70% of apparel is sold online? You know, I don't think so. Is it 60%, 50? I, I think what's happened is e-commerce's boost means that we're going to have normalizing growth numbers out of e-commerce in the future, while at the same time, if you're a retailer and your big problem was that in the year 2000, you had 1,600 stores and you've had 20 years of trying to adjust to, well, what happens if 40% of my business ends up being online? How many stores do I need? Well, the damage of COVID, the closures, the bankruptcies, that accelerated that process. It's like we got you know, four years worth of consolidation done in the span of, of nine months, really, you know, for 15 years straight, we were dealing with, well, overall retail might grow by 3% a year, e-commerce was growing by five times that. As they normalize, now if you're a retailer, we really are starting to see things like the digital native brands that are saying, okay, we have our online growth all set up. At this point, the way to continue to grow the brand is to open these embassies of the brand, to open physical stores. I mean, essentially, what I'm also hearing you say, and I love the, the, the statement about how these brands are opening, what you say, like embassies of their brand, which means that there's confidence that opening up a physical store, a physical space is still one of the best ways to connect with your consumer. And with that comes the fact that those physical spaces need to represent your brand really, really well. And you got to do all the right things to explain what you think of your consumer. The other thing I'm also hearing is that the proportion of e-commerce to in-store purchases, the size of the slices have changed, but the pie also got bigger. Are, are consumers also spending more today than they did before? Well, we've had this very strange 18-month trend for physical retail because no one was spending money on services. You know, it, it, probably the easiest thing to just point to would say, you know, for example, grocery stores during the pandemic were the big winner largely at restaurants' expenses, right? Well, that's normalizing. Uh but if you just look across the spectrum with nobody, you know, people not going on vacation, with them not eating out, with them not going uh, to health clubs uh, and pursuing retail services, you saw this shift of spending on retail hard lines, soft lines that created double digit growth. And, and remember, you know, like I said, for the 20 years before the pandemic, retail was averaging about 3% growth a year. For the last 18 months, and it varies depending on the category, 
virtually every category was double-digit growth. And some of them, at different points, were talking about 20, 30% growth. And that's not just year over year where you're maybe comparing, say, 2021 to 2020, which is problematic, right? Because nobody nobody bought any apparel in April and May 2020 to speak of, you know? But if you compare it to the pre-COVID numbers, now, unfortunately, I think that's coming to an end. The, the March retail sales numbers still were positive, but there's some categories that year over year were turning negative. That if you look at the most recent, you know, total dollars spent versus say February 2020, right before the pandemic, that are still positive. But what's slowing down is because one category of retail has spiked into huge double digits, and that's gas stations. So the the problem that we're facing right now is that the gas prices are starting to take their toll on consumer spending. It's still going to remain positive, I think, for at least the next six months. But, you know, there are some dark clouds on the economic horizon that I'm a little bit concerned about. But, you know, right now, that's part of the reason for the turnaround is that it, and it you know, took apparel probably. They were like the last to, to feel a rebound. But, you know, starting about a year ago, as people started going back to work in person, you saw suddenly just a huge amount of money going back up, pent up demand, people, you know, realizing, you know, I got the COVID-20, I need to go buy a new wardrobe, right? Uh, you know, all that stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. So this is a great segue into our next section, right? And we better move to our next section or our producer, Emma, is going to be sending you messages in all caps. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so let's talk about some big picture objectives, Garrick, and, and the way teams can move them across the goal line. We're going to go inside, we're going to go outside, inside and outside. We're going to get them on the run, boys. Once we get them on the run, we're going to keep them on the run. And then we're going to go, 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 go. And we're not going to stop till we get across that goal line. What are you seeing in terms of customer expectations of brands as it relates to customer experience? And what are brands doing to deliver these experiences? Well, you know, this, this is always one of the, the challenging points of retail is that customer expectations almost always just grow, you know, whether it's, you know, I, I mean, at this point, you know, if you, if you, I remember the first time I bought something online in the nineties, I was ecstatic to receive it three weeks later. That doesn't fly anymore. You know, and obviously we've, we've seen Amazon double their real estate in the last two and a half years so that they're, they're actively trying to make same day delivery, the norm, not, you know, not just in the densest markets, but everywhere, at least in the continental US. So instant gratification, right? Instant gratification. And, you know, and here's the thing is, I think it's really critical that every retailer reminds themselves of the basics. And to me, most basic thing you have to remember is consumers come to your store really your shopping center if you're a landlord, it's similar, but only for one of three things. If you can deliver on all three together, you've hit the trifecta, but that's almost impossible to do. But they're either coming for the value or they are coming for the experience or 
they're coming out of convenience. And the disruption of the last 20 years was e-commerce seizing upon that convenience, right? Which meant if you're a brand, now how do you best compete? Value or experience, those often are two opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, But one thing I'll say is if you want to compete on value, your challenge is, is that you have to create scale and you have to be huge to be able to generate the kind of value, say, a Walmart or a Target can do. Almost nobody can get to that point, which leaves you with experience. And, and so much of the retail apocalypse story, the brands that were failing before the pandemic, were those brands in the middle where they weren't luxury, they weren't discount. They didn't stick out from their competitors. That's never going to change. And I, and I think the important thing, especially for a lot of these players that are growing, is, is don't lose sight of that just because you had a couple of good quarters. You need to continue to innovate in the way that you meet customer expectations and experience for most of them is, is a big one for the physical store. Certainly on the e-commerce side, it's it's that convenience expectation, the instant gratification, fast shipping times. But in store, you have to remember that, you know, experiential retail isn't just, you know, axe throwing or barcades. You know, customer service is the first most important type of experience. And, and I think one of the challenges that retail's had especially, I think, the growing influence of private equity, of Wall Street. If you just look over the last 40 years, we've kind of ignored service with a lot of chains. You know, retail wages, until recently, if you adjust them for inflation, actually went backwards over the last 40 years. That's a challenge. You know, having good service translates into good experience and you know you you tend to get what you pay for right i always think of myself as a consumer when you walk into a physical space and it feels warm and clean it looks like the the brand cares about what i experience Mm -hmm. it's almost the equivalent of looking at someone and them giving you a smile you feel welcome And if you walk in and the person who's supposed to be in customer service doesn't give you a smile back, it's the same feeling as if you walk into a space and you walk into the lobby where the door won't open right, the tiles are broken, the carpet is stained. So it's the same thing. And brands need to invest in those physical experiences because like you said, Experiential retail is not just about axe throwing or things along those lines, but it's also about what it makes the consumer feel. Well, and 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 in that side of it, you know, that gets down to everything from merchandising to the architecture and design of the store to the lighting to and, and just really a whole bunch of facilities issues. I don't want to name names, but you know there was there was a large big box retailer that went bankrupt a few years ago and liquidated, and they were a leveraged buyout retailer. Which, for those who might not know what a leveraged buyout is, it's when private equity borrows money, they purchase a retailer, but then they put that debt 
on the retailer to pay back. And, and in the meantime, this this particular retailer, their private equity owners had taken out billions in profits. They didn't invest in e-commerce. They didn't invest in upgrading the stores. They didn't even really invest in maintaining a lot of the facilities because they were extracting wealth. Now, that retailer eventually went bankrupt, owing billions, which, of course, the private equity guys didn't have to pay because it was on the retailer's neck. And they ended up being liquidated and thousands of jobs were lost. But I just remember going to one of their stores as they were doing their liquidation sales and just something as simple as looking at the floors and realizing, wow, okay, they haven't kept this facility up. I mean, this is a dirty, uninviting store. And that should be a no-brainer. You know, uh, if, if, if the goal of running a retail organization is to survive and thrive as opposed to, you know, sometimes these weird financial plays have nothing to do with retail at all. But uh, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like when you walked into that store, and I think I know what the story you're talking about, but when you walk into that store, the writing was not only on the wall, it was also on the floor and the ceiling and all the fixtures because it showed it showed the age and it was not wasn't taken care of, which brings me to the next question. Right. It's a perfect segue to what you think the role of facilities is and the value they bring to the overall brand and the organization. I, I think this is a principal tenant that often gets forgotten by retail organizations you know, it gets viewed as, oh, this is something we just have to do. It's, you know, we just leave that to our operations folks to work out. If you stop thinking in terms of your facilities being part of creating that experience for your consumer, I think that's a big mistake. And obviously, you know, it can be something as, as simple as just making sure that you know, your displays and your, your lighting, you know, that you're, you're promptly taking care of light bulbs that go out or that you're making sure everything runs smoothly. If it's an escalator or elevator system, whatever that those, those just seem like no brainers. But I think that it's, it's really important for organizations to, to understand that, Hey, you know, something as simple as a dirty floor that impacts a consumer's experience, that impacts whether or not... And, and, and right now, would it, if you look who are the most successful retailers, they're ones that build lifestyle niches. You know, restoration hardware, for example, you know, which literally, when I was in school, I worked at restoration hardware for a few months. It, it actually was just a really cool hardware store with some furniture back then <laughs> now it's a lifestyle brand i mean it, it's and 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 here's the thing you know i'm going to get wonky on the economic side of this there was a great book called the experience economy that a couple of economists uh gilmore and pine guys i really look up to they wrote in the mid 90s and they kind of foretold everything that's happened in retail the last 20 years, although it wasn't didn't bring in the e-commerce side of it, but it was simply this. It was that if you're a retailer and you're trying to get top dollar for what you do, okay, you're up against the discounters. The only way to separate that out is to build an experience 
And, and what they argued was, is that we would see basically the erosion of the middle from both sides over the next 20 years, because, you know, on the one hand, you'd see some retailers saying, we're going to boost our offerings. We'll build incredible loyalty from consumers. You know, we'll build incredible price loyalty. I mean, if you look at what people are willing to spend on a fern, on say a couch at Restoration Hardware versus say a more middle of the road, non-lifestyle branded, furniture store. And, and I get it. The quality is probably way better and so forth. But the reality is, is that people pay more for experiences. And if it's more of a commoditized good, which is where the discounters side, the value side is, price is what dictates consumer loyalty, right? So, you know, you you might be an incredible discounter with, with bringing people in with your pricing. But if you start to lose that price advantage, a lot of those consumers aren't going to stay with you. Whereas, you know, if, if you talk to people that are, you know, just diehard RH folks, they'll walk through fire to, to, to go and check out a brand new restoration hardware, you know? So. Right. I truly believe that even in the discount stores, the demographic of the customer base that is, you know, shopping there, even they still have expectations of what the store should look and feel like. I mean, it doesn't have to be fancy. You know what to expect, but you still want the location to be clean and safe and welcoming. Like those are not things that a customer should have to compromise on. It doesn't have to be covered in marble. It just needs to feel like you care about what the consumer feels when they walk in. Your biggest value might be having products at value, but you still want the customer to walk in feeling like you care, right? Yeah. You, you know, you should never have the situation. The second a customer, just just the, the dirty store example, okay? That, you know, and, and again, I don't want to name names, but, you know, there was a iconic department store that I grew up Every every year as we're getting ready for school, that was our back to school clothing clothing source. They were on top of the world in the eighties. They've since gone bankrupt, and there's very few of them left. But the reality is, is if you went into that particular chain, anytime really in the ten years before it went bankrupt, you could tell the financial problems were playing out, and it they weren't maintaining the facilities. They didn't have enough sales crew. And you would go into these environments that frankly felt depressing. And, and you're never going to turn around a challenged retail or a challenged concept without that basic investment. You know, it doesn't matter how low you slash the prices. At the end of the day, even on the value scale, nobody wants to shopping in a, in a depressing, dingy or dirty environment, period. That's right, because there's always another business around the corner that does it right. And if you want to compete, you have to make your consumer want to walk into your store. Well, and like you said, it doesn't all have to be marble either. You know, I think that, that that's one of those things that, I mean, one of the challenges for all these brands who are growing right now is the inflation issue. Well, construction costs are up 30% year over year right now. 
they've actually gone down from they they were they peaked in January at up forty percent year over year. Um, but it means that build out in creating those settings costs more significantly more today than it did just 12 months ago. And that's going to be with us for a little while. But, you know, part of it, though, is is you, the materials you use. There's a wide range of, of things that you can use to create these welcoming environments. Often what I see some brands doing is putting all the onus on the store design, but then somewhat letting the facility side of, of it skimping on that. And that's a big mistake. Like they go hand in hand. You know, I look at it as the architects and the designers, they design this, you know, hopefully beautiful space that consumers are going to love, especially if you merchandise it well. But it's facilities that maintains and, and it keeps it. And, you know, you, you can't splurge on one and skip on the other. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. Couldn't agree more. They're the ones that are preserving the physical space and thereby preserving the brand. And that's important. So moving on to the next section, Garrick, let's talk about tools and strategies. I want to hear how one should do it. This is how we do From the perspective of your role, what is the relationship between store operations, construction, finance, and facilities? And how do you think successful teams work together towards the same goal and desired results? Well, I tend to see this with the smaller luxury retailers tend to do the best job of not getting siloed. The real challenge, especially for the big chains, is that more often than not, they have these deep, dark silos where the operations folks don't necessarily know the finance folks or the construction folks or the real estate folks. I, I mean, look, most large chains, I can tell you on the real estate side, their industrial real estate folks, the people who look for their distribution centers and or their e-commerce fulfillment centers are siloed from the store folks. That's a challenge across so many organizations. Uh, you know, when I look at, say, the Bottega Vanitas, the, the Gucci, the Louis Vuitton, you know, usually you see those folks all working together knowing who each other is and 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 you see some teamwork i think i think that is the biggest organizational challenge that retailers face is you've got to find ways to break down these silos you'll get far far better results if you actually create successful teams than just having these groups working independently not knowing you know left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing and unfortunately, that's that's a challenge, I think, just just it comes with being big organizations. Right. It kind of goes back to the point you were making earlier about how there's this massive push, you know, with real estate construction, store opening to get all of that funded right and built out right. And then in many organizations, they just leave it and say, hey, facilities, now you go figure it out. 
right? And and that's usually a very bad strategy because are you actually building out your store in a way that is conducive to maintain? You know, that you hear stories of retailers building fixtures with lights in them, but there's no way to get behind to the lights because there's no there's nothing that allows you to change the bulb. Simple small things like that if you if you don't keep maintenance in mind, you know, you end up in a situation like that where you don't have facilities at the table and facilities deserves to be at the table. Well, and, I, and I'm, I'm hearing that, for example, right now, there's, there's a whole bunch of new AI fueled security systems out there. Not just, you know, like the Amazon Go technology, which, which is out there, which by the way, if you've been to, um, you know, Amazon Go or, or the new Amazon Fresh stores, they have hundreds of cameras up above you that when you walk in, AI tracks you, right? So that you can, you have that just takeout technology. So once you, you know, you scan in, whether it's you use your palm or you use your phone, it tracks you and it figures out what have you picked up? What are you taking out? What did you pick up? What did you take, put back? Well, those systems alone, you know, are starting to spread beyond Amazon. Amazon's selling that technology. Other stores are starting to buy it. But, you know, there's also systems out there that tap into AI that, for example, read body language. So they tip loss prevention off to potential shoplifters, depending on their body language behavior. But I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from friends of mine in facilities organizations, is a lot of these are really extensive. And, and if you're not, you know, putting the operations and facilities people together with the construction people that are putting this stuff in, <laughs> you start having these stories of, well, you know, the cameras were put in and, you know, now we can't get to them to fix them or it causes a problem with this or that, you know, and again, it's just the challenge of, people being siloed and not working together on teams with a clear path forward together. Right. I mean, because there are so many different things being tried out right now. Where it shows and even what I'm hearing are even restaurants like retail are trying new and different technologies to engage the consumer. Everything from drones to deliver food to robots in the restaurant to serve you drinks or bus your tables. You know, it's interesting, right? Like similar to the cameras in stores that have this no waiting in line concept, just walk in and walk out. Those pieces of equipment tie directly into your sales and your revenue. And not having a camera functional has a direct impact on loss prevention, on errors in point of sale, and how fast can you actually find service providers to go and, and fix the issue? And you've got all these brands that if you don't think about ways in which you can maintain those assets and maintain those pieces of equipment, you're going to find yourself in a weird situation where you've got 100 cameras, but you've got like a blind spot because four cameras in one section don't work. And you don't have a service provider who can come in fast enough to resolve the issue. How much is that hurting you? Because the cost, the consumer doesn't know. They're just going to walk out. <laughs> well, and and the thing is, you know, you, and you start to talk about robotics. Just anyone in facilities has got to get ready for the robotic revolution that has already begun. That's going to 
significantly ramp up in the next few years. I mean, if you just look at venture capital fundraising, which has set records in 2020, it more you know, from 2019, about $80 billion in, in the U.S. was raised for VC funding, mostly for new tech verticals, right? That more than doubled in 2020. It doubled again in 2021 so that by 2021 it was like 320 billion and change if you just look at what's been invested in robotics in the last five years it's over a hundred billion dollars and if you look at what's happened with our labor issues you know uh during the pandemic of course we we had you know just all sorts of people horribly impacted but those who could work from home were okay. Unemployment is almost back to pre-pandemic levels at this point. It's it's back in the mid-trees. We have 11.9 million available jobs as of the last reporting from the Labor Department, which is a record. And we had about 4 million people drop out of the workforce during the pandemic that haven't come back yet. We have a worker shortage. And about 3 million took early retirement. 3 million were just people 62 or older that said, that's it, I'm done. So we have this really intense worker shortage. You know, remember, and our, our birth rate's been declining each decade going back. Well, we had a little bit of a surge with the millennial generation. Before that, you have to go back to the baby boomers. And immigration, which accounts for about the other half of our usual population growth, has fallen off a cliff in recent years. So even if we had a recession, let's say in a year from now, and we saw unemployment go from the threes to the, uh, say, sevens, we're still going to be short workers. So so that's why, like, especially in the fast food arena, you are seeing... Like I believe Jack in the Box announced the other day that they're testing robots and, and you know, you're going to see more and more of these things impacting the way the facilities are run, whether it's Flippy, the robot burger flipper or robot waiters in the, in the restaurant arena, or, you know, you're going to see, you know, the facilities needs of these self-checkout aisles are completely different than the standard. So you've got this huge amount of capital that's creating new tools, new robotics, and then you have this real need in the marketplace. So this is going to really impact the way people operate facilities going forward that I think facilities managers really need to pay attention to. That's phenomenal. I 100% agree. For our last segment, let's look forward to the future of our industry. The future. The future. The future. But before we look to the future, let's talk about the past. From your perspective, how has the industry evolved over the past 10 years? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we had so much of it. The last 10 years was about how do we become omni-channel? And that really is back, you know, when I say that the retail apocalypse is, is over, I view that entire era of that storyline through the lens of the, okay, We've got too many stores and we need to build e-commerce simultaneously and the disruption that that caused, the, the brands that it killed, the brands that uh, suffered but pulled out, 
the ones that led the way. I think that story is over now. I don't think that's going to be the big challenge going forward. Don't get me wrong. Is e-commerce still a disruptor? Yeah, but there's not a lot of categories of retail left. It hasn't disrupted. Drugstores would probably be the biggest one where there could be a lot more disruption. That's always proven to be challenging because the laws vary state by state. What you can do to uh, e-commerce pharmacy versus in-store, there's limitations. But, but for the most part, every other category has already had the lion's share of the disruption done. I think the thing that's going to take center stage in the next decade is really going to be all about dominating on experience and and doing really finishing the omni-channel homework of making making things seamless because the consumer you know if if they love you and your brand they want that seamless experience and they could care less where they get the goods from if it's the store if it's online if they went online and you know warehouse didn't have them but you send it to them from a store if you go to a store and they procure something online for you consumers don't care they just want that seamless experience there's a lot more that could be done on that end right right exactly yeah very interesting any covid related shifts that you think are here to stay going forward Obviously, I've kind of talked about the, the e-commerce spike and now more normalization, the pain of retail, which getting the bandage ripped at once, that's put it in a much healthier spot. I do think consumer behavior, especially with fashion and apparel, you know, I think we've seen that casual Friday is every day now. If you just look at who does well in apparel, it's it's the leisure wear, it's, it's the athleisure, the um, active wear, casual wear. It's a little bit of a rough go, you know, selling men's suits, for example, right now. Although I do think that couture has its own world and time and place. Uh, I don't think that that changes because I think the way we worked has permanently changed. And... Um, hybrid sure there's going to be more and more people coming back to office that maybe haven't but it's going to be so much more hybrid from here on out so that's not a good news a bit of good news for the apparel brands but i also think that focus on home i don't see that necessarily going away because i think a lot more of us can be working from home more and i think that's all great stuff for home-related retail, everything from the do-it-yourself, big box guys, to the restoration hardwares and the furniture and furnishings segment, the at-homes and so forth. So I think that category got a big boost. One thing I'm still waiting to see is how much telemedicine does or doesn't stick around. That's just something, just because we were seeing more and more medical users going into retail shopping centers. And, uh, you know, I, I still think that there's runway for growth with that, but, uh, those would be the big ones. I mean, what, what, what I find interesting right now is the rush to normalcy that in a lot of ways, things are snapping back as if nothing happened. There's a few dif- differences, uh, you know, we're recording this in early May and, and my understanding is, is that 
June and July of this month may set records for number of marriages. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. You know, I, I think when you have extreme times, you end up with extreme outcomes. And I'm just glad that we're moving into uh, whatever this new normal is. Right. It's good to see things coming back to normal, but with some of the things that made us get through these challenging times as well. I mean, I think that there's been a lot of innovation, adaptation, and both businesses and workplaces trying to figure out what the future looks like. And a lot of different companies have tried new things. Some good has come out of it. And those good things, I think, will hopefully stand the test of time. We'll, we'll see. But as we look to the future, we'd love to like raise a, a toast and say, let's hope for the best, right? This has been a fantastic conversation, Garrick. As we wrap up, what advice would you give to our audience so they may have the biggest impact on brand performance? Well, I think it's, it's critical to remember that the experience is at every single level from from the second, really from the second a consumer sees your store and is walking towards it to go inside. And it's so critical not to be siloed and to emphasize the experience first and foremost, whether it's in dealing with your salespeople, your customer service folks, your facilities folks, your maintenance folks, that, that this ultimately, you know, ultimately retail is kind of a hospitality business nowadays. You know, if you want to differentiate yourself uh, and, and most, most chains simply are not, not going to have the scale to just make it all about discount and value. And even if you can, it doesn't mean that any of this is less important. You know, that's that's where it's it's so difficult to deliver on all three, you know, my big motivators, which is value, convenience, experience. But we we are now in the experience economy, full stop. And if you want to survive, it's so critical that you know that the experience is what builds your brand, it's what builds loyalty, and it, it impacts every single part of your store from operations to maintenance to service and it's so critical that everyone on your team from the buyers to the warehouse guys understand that is you know that is your basic credo that's what i would advise people first and foremost always start with that love it garrick this has been fantastic i've truly enjoyed this conversation Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Can you tell the audience where they can find you? Sure. Well, you know, I've got my own podcast, uh, Sid, that uh, I do with Bill Yannick from Connects FM. It's called The Retail Grind. Uh, it's on all the major podcast stores. Or you can drop me a line directly at Garrick, G-A-R-R-I-C-K, at lockhouse.com. And that's L-O-C-K-E-H-O-U-S-E. Love it. Thank you so much, Garrick. Really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Sid. Thank you for listening to this episode of Elevating Brick and Mortar, a podcast brought to you by Service Channel. Partner with Service Channel for peak facilities performance. Go to servicechannel.com to learn more. 
And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rate and review. 